Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to pick up in uh, verse 19 where we left off uh, last week. We want to progress through. We're not going to handle a large passage of Scripture this morning um, because we want to look at its impact, and there is a lot of conjecture out there with regard to this passage, and uh, we don't want to enter into too much of that. Uh, about what was going on and why Jesus responded the way he did. Uh, and yet we are going to look at the power of what, he, what has been recorded of what he said. Obviously, there is more going on here. Uh, how do I know that? Because John admits to it. He says, I can't write down everything that happened, everything Jesus said, everything that was going on. Uh, there's not enough paper and books and ink in the world to do that. Uh, because there was, his ministry was so full and so extensive. And so uh, we know that there's other things, but we want to examine what we have been shown through God's word and learn from it. We begin in verse 19, it says, The Pharisees, this is following the royal procession of Jesus into Jerusalem as their king. And remember last week we talked about the absolute necessity of this so that Israel could not only receive him as king, but reject him as their king a few days later. That this was a necessary component. That the royal procession was a fulfillment of prophecy, certainly, but it was also the mechanism by which the people would declare with their mouths, whether they understood it in their hearts or whether they had committed their lives to it or not, they declared it with their mouths, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So they identified him as their king. And yes, they, many of them, would have been the same voices that yelled out, crucify him. A few days later, rejecting him as their king. And we're going to talk about the necessity of that here very shortly. But at the end of this royal procession, uh, we have this influx of, of tens of thousands. And if in your mind you only think of a few hundred, a couple deep, do, participating in this, uh, that is far from what was going on here. This was the event in Jerusalem that day. No one wanted to miss it. Remember, we had just had a man who had been dead four days, was raised from the dead. By the man coming in, everyone heard. Everyone wanted to see him. Everyone wanted to have contact with him. He had multitudes following him. That was part of the problem when we come to verse 19. It is the problem, was the multitudes. By the testimony of his enemies, everyone in Jerusalem was interested in Jesus. It is difficult sometimes for us to fathom that kind of interest um, outside of certain realms. Um, we, we looked at the highlights from the Ohio State game, and they announced somewhere in the highlights the attendance of 104,000 people watching a college football game. And we're just kind of like, well, that's like a fourth of the population of Albuquerque. Fifth. In one place, stadium. One place. Um, to follow entertainment. Um, a few guys out there bashing each other around uh, to get one end of a field to the other. That was a draw in Roman world too. That's why their coliseums for the games were so enormous and so plentiful. Um, and that was true in, in Israel at this time, um, in Caesarea by the sea, uh, we have uncovered uh, the Hippodrome, which is for the horse racing, car chariot racing, uh, other coliseums for sports. Um, but in Jerusalem, at the Passover, this was the event. We had the opportunity to be in the city on the 50th anniversary of the founding of Jerusalem. Um, Trump was there a day or two before us. Uh, we, were, we didn't get to go into the city because they said it was going to be chaos with him there, but in fact the city was empty when he was there because of all security, no one wanted to be there. But the next day when we were there, there were a million people in the city. And I think about 150,000 of them touched me or as we just tried to get through that city. It was just like, Bleh. 
because I'm trying to drag three women with me, you know, make sure they didn't get separated. So I, not because I had my daughter, Andrea, and my wife. So I, I wasn't picking up extra women. I was just, it was my family, okay? <laughs> so that's got to be in your mind. That's the scale of what we we're talking about here. And so Christ comes in, and we come to verse 19. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. They're not talking to the disciples, to Jesus. They're talking to each other among themselves. Look, the whole world has gone after him. What a wonderful indictment. The whole world's going after this guy. We are losing the grip of this city that we have successfully maintained, uh, granted through some compromises with the Romans, but we maintained our religious, political grip upon this city. We have ruled and reigned here as kind of the de facto leaders of the people of Israel. And now this one comes in. We have tried to oppose him, oppose him, oppose him, and nothing, nothing has worked. But I want you to notice in their indictment that they're recognizing that the whole world has gone after him. This isn't, certainly in their vernacular, they meant all of Judaism, all of Israel, all of their world. But the fact is, is that their words are more accurate that all the world was going after Jesus Christ. And this was Jesus Christ's mission he has come to seek and to save those that are lost of all the nations. He's not just the king of Israel. He, is, he has come to reach all men. And that necessitated something. It necessitated that Israel would reject him as their king so that once the door was shut there, that it would be blown open for the rest of the nations. And so while we shudder at the idea that these who sang Hosanna then cry out crucify him, um, we understand the blessing it is on this side of that because we are the benefactors of that horrible event. Because of their rejection of their Messiah, we have the extension of the gospel to all the world. And in the power of the resurrection, what is the statement of Jesus Christ in the commissioning in Acts? You'll go to Jerusalem, to Judea. Okay, we're fine there. Samaria, <laughs> Samaria, those half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentiles, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you have a hard time stepping from, from the second one to the third one, how hard is it from the third one to the fourth one? This is for all men. And it has been prophesied all the way back to the garden and, and the covenant promises, not only to Abraham, but to, but to David. And, and we, we find that within the covenants of God, his intentions all along has been to try to reach all men with the gospel. And so here, much like Caiaphas, who made the declaration, one man should die for all the people, for all the nation, for, for our, us um, now we have inadvertently them declaring the mission of Jesus Christ, which he is going to embrace by the end of our passage today. And so among the spectators <laughs> of the triumphal entry, we have a hostile group. They certainly did not yell out Hosanna. They certainly did not throw down palm branches or their clothing they were the spectators, and yeah, I'm pretty sure among their number is a guy named Saul of Tarsus. He didn't just magically appear out of nowhere when we get the book of Acts. He was around during this time period, had to be, um, and certainly was in the city uh, and was in with this group uh, and may have heard these very words. There's one group of spectators, but there was another group of spectators there that is going to be the next step, if you will, of, of this idea that the whole world is going after Jesus Christ. 
And in verse 20 it says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Now let me explain this a little bit, okay, just to help you. Why is this happening? Why are there Greeks in Jerusalem um, in their high holiday? Uh, and when they say Greeks, this isn't necessarily just people from Greece. Um, this is a term used for all those who are Greek-speaking primarily. And a little history will help you out with this, I think. All right, um, the Roman Empire really in this region uh, from Italy east into Greece and what is modern-day Turkey and uh, Lebanon, Iraq, Israel, uh, Syria, um, Jordan, and even to a degree down towards Egypt, uh, in their conquering, were really conquering a people who had already conquered a people. And so the Romans really absorbed the Greek Empire. And in that Greek Empire, um, one of the key things that uh, Alexander the Great and his four generals that divide up his kingdom required appeals, they all had to learn Greek. Because they understood that one language was vital to keeping it one empire. Okay? They understood that. They understood the power of language. And do not ever underestimate that. Um, language is a divisive aspect of humanity. Hasn't always been that. It has only been that since the Tower of Babel. Of all the things God used, he didn't use what color your skin is, what color your eyes are, what, whether your hair is curly or straight. He didn't use whether you had high stature or low stature. He used just one element, and that was your tongue to divide all men from one another. He just had to give you all different languages, and bam, you were separated. So how critical is one language? It is one of the highest components of unity among a people. Is we all can speak and understand each other. How important is it that you learn language? It's that important. And as our whole earth is moving more and more to a one world government has required really that they have a single language to make to facilitate that and English has been the de facto language. And so I have Bedouin uh, camel herders out in the desert of Egypt saying hi-ho silver. Where do they get that from? How many of you know where hi-ho silver comes from? All the old people. Sorry, Jonathan, you're old now. <laughs> How many of you do not know where high ho silver comes from? Oh, boy, okay. All right. <clears throat> now you have to go Google it, because I'm not telling you. And so here's a better one. How did he have that language, those words in his mind, was through the media, through American movies and television that we are bringing the whole world to one language. So the Greek-speaking empire was extensive. And when the Romans conquered Greece, they couldn't get past that. They, they didn't require Latin from everybody because, interestingly enough, most of Italy had learned Greek. But none of Greece had learned Latin. They weren't interested because they were Greece. And so most Romans knew how to speak Greek. And interesting, most of their empire spoke Greek. So when it talks about the Greeks, it's the Greek-speaking people of Jerusalem, which could mean that they could be from any number of places on the earth, but they had Greek available to them. And it's kind of interesting when you get to Acts chapter 2. This is extra for free. Uh, you get to Acts chapter 2. Um, the apostles didn't stand up and speak Greek. Pretty much everyone would have understood them if they had just preached in Greek. And that's probably what Peter's final sermon was, was in Greek. Not in Hebrew, it would have been in Greek. But you see, while Greek was the language of the empire, everyone had their own personal language that was their 
mother tongue, their home language, their birth language, if you will. And, and, and that's what the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit was, that you could speak in birth tongues to people. And so I would have to speak Filipino here to Nyla, and I have to speak Spanish to several of you, and there's like two or three different Spanishes, because if you go to Cuba, it's a completely different Spanish than in Mexico. And if you go to Spain, it's, it's Castilian, and it's completely different there. And um, we came across some Spaniards up in Montana, and very formal Spanish compared to what we're accustomed to here. And then you come to New Mexico and it's some weird conglomeration. This isn't hardly, Spaniards wouldn't even consider what you say Spanish. Um, but uh, so they could speak their mother tongue to them. So here come the Greek-speaking believers. Now, I talked about among this one group, there would be Saul. And among the Greek-speaking people, who are worshipers of Jehovah. These are non-Jewish born who converted to Judaism or their families did. They might have been raised in Judaism all their life because their parents might have, or their grandparents might have converted uh, a long time ago. So they converted to Judaism. They made a religious decision to follow the one true God of Israel. It was not a political decision. It was a religious one. And so they're the Greek-speaking. Among them, um, we know probably seven of them by name. One of them that would stick out to you would be Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was likely in this group. Again, he didn't just pop out of nowhere in the book of Acts. He was a resident of Jerusalem, and he was there, or at least came in for there, and was there from this point on, from Pentecost on, he was there. And he specifically went and ministered to the Greek synagogues. That's where he testified and, and defended the gospel. And the likelihood is he was already one of the leaders within the Greek community of Greeks who had converted to Judaism. So these are still religious Jews but who had been circumcised and, and had adopted all the law um, and had uh, wanted to follow Jehovah. And so uh, they come, and they're spectators. We don't see them active yet. We haven't seen them engaging Jesus in Jerusalem. We have had some engagements outside of Jerusalem with some uh, Gentiles, some Romans, some Greeks. We've, we've had some of that, but not in Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus has really been picking fights with and engaging uh, the leadership of Jerusalem, which would be the Pharisees, Sadducees, the priests. None of them would have been Greeks. So the Greeks have kind of been on the outside looking and watching all of this and with this triumphal entry because they didn't have a political stake in Jerusalem that, that, like the Jews did. They didn't have a ruling class in Jerusalem. Um, they, they, they were the outsiders looking in. And even when they went to the temple, they couldn't go in to the innermost areas. The temple had the courtyard of the priests first, where the sacrifices were held. Outside is the courtyard of the men. Then there's the courtyard of the women. And then there's the courtyard of the Gentiles. So Jewish women could get closer to the sacrifices than the Greek male. Because you weren't born a Jew. And so those were Gentile followers of Jehovah were out here in the outer courtyards. So they were truly the outsiders looking in. They were spectators. And so now they come upon the scene, and this is who we're talking about. They've come to the feast. They've traveled from all over the Roman Empire, but they all speak Greek. And they certainly would have come to the leadership of the Greek synagogues there in Jerusalem. That's where they would have primarily worshipped, uh, not in the temple, um, although Solomon's colonnade, where Jesus was frequently found, um, they did have access to that area. And so... Here we find them coming. They come to Philip, one of the twelve, one of the apostles, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And uh, we get, give that information again. And asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
We want to see them. We want to have an audience with them. What they are requesting is a royal visit. <laughs> they are requesting a royal audience. They are recognizing him as king, and they are saying, we want to see him and pay our respects to him, having had this entry into Jerusalem where all these Jerusalemites are yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. And as king, we want to come and see him. Now, some have said, no, no, they had other motives going on here, um, and perhaps they had some geopolitical motivation, but it's not recorded here for us. It's, it's pure conjecture. They wanted to see Jesus. And in the context of what just happened that morning, um, you cannot miss the fact that this essentially becomes an official visit from a large group of pilgrims and residents of Jerusalem who are a little bit disassociated from the rest of Judaism. They're kind of the in-laws. Okay? Or maybe a better also, the step family. And so here comes Philip, and, and Philip is, goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. So Philip's like, what do you think? Should we, is this... This whole group wants to come. Now remember, I wouldn't doubt that the disciples had some geopolitical aspirations. We already know they did. In fact, a little while later this week, they're going to have a big discussion about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They had kingdom thoughts. And if you're going to establish a new kingdom, what do you need? Allies. And here's a very powerful group of people from all over the Roman Empire. They're already committed to Jehovah. And now we, they want to see Jesus. And we have an opportunity to maybe form uh, and expand ourselves now beyond just Jerusalem to Judea and even throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, I'm sure they had some idea of geopolitical things because kingdom thoughts were on their mind all the way back to when Jesus fed the 5,000. And Jesus said, get in the boat. Uh, they're not going to make me king today. Won't allow it. Because they were part of the problem too. That's a pretty good idea. If Jesus is the king, who am I? I'm one of his inner 12. So he goes and talks to Andrew and they come to Jesus. There's this really important group out here. Uh, they like an audience with you. And um, I think we should let them come talk to us. They want to see you. They want to visit with you. There's an attempt by the translators to show you that Jesus is not accommodating. And that's by, uh, in the Greek it's pretty evident that it's a Jesus has a negative response. It is given to you in, in the next verse, uh, the first word of the verse, 23, is but. Instead of embracing these people at this point, it says but. Jesus has a negative response to the request. These people were spectators. And remember, Jesus had encounters with Gentiles of varying natures, always talking about um, their great faith, has, and uh, on at least one occasion, uh, flatly turning them down and saying, you're not, a, you're not of Israel, so I, you're, you're beyond the scope of my ministry. And that gal says, but even the dogs get the children's crumbs. She's just asking for crumbs from the table. Can I just get what spills over what the Jews don't eat? Can we just have the crumbs? And then Jesus, because of what she said, cared for her. Took care of her needs. And so we come to this and we're perplexed a little bit. Why would Jesus' response to these be negative? But his response, negative response, wasn't to the Greek seeking to see Jesus. It was to the disciples. And my contention is we don't know what the Greeks' motives were. But we have a pretty good idea of what the disciples' motives were. And so Jesus comes in and wants to address these who, and, and 
the disciples. And by inference now, we're going to reflect this back onto why would Jesus deny an audience to these Greeks? You might say, he came for the whole world. Why isn't he willing to see them? We're going to see a key element here in a little bit. Let's look directly at Christ's first response. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man may be glorified, should be glorified. We're going to spend a lot of time that next week on the glorification. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. And so we find this use of the term um, glorified. And Jesus is going to use this as a very, and John's use of this word and quoting it of Jesus is very specific. And we're going to really develop it a lot next week. Uh, essentially, we're going to boil this down to the idea of complete obedience. And it's effect. And so this, when he says that the time of my glorification is at hand, Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come. It's too late to think about the kingdom. The rejection is on the cusp of happening. My death, burial, and resurrection is about to occur. Uh, it is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that is to complete my mission. The hour for me to complete my personal mission on earth is coming. The hour is here. And what is it going to entail? Well, it's going to entail a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying, that it may burst forth later and produce much fruit. He is obviously referring to his death, burial, resurrection, and then the birth of the church. This will come out of the power of the resurrection. It wasn't the power of the death. The power of death was to be the propitiation, to, to cover sin. The power of the resurrection is to serve, to move from spectator to participant. The Greeks were ready in their mind and heart to make that transition. I am convinced of it. We would see Jesus. We want to be part of his kingdom. We want to support him as king as well. We want a part of this. We've just heard the Jews screaming, Hosanna, the king of Israel. We've seen them strewn. We've seen them fulfilled prophecy. We've seen the, the palm branches laid out and the clothing. We've seen the procession. And we want to be part of that kingdom of God. They were ready to make that transition of loyalty from Rome to Jesus. They were ready to do that. But I don't know that that... But, and they were ready to serve him. But Jesus is like, it's not yet time. Because the power to do that is not in you. Because what Jesus Christ is going to be tapping is not geopolitical power. It is not whether I got elected or I have the military behind me or I have enough followers on, on my social media. You know, then you're an influencer. Don't you love that title that they put on themselves? I am an influencer. Every time I hear someone call, I about gag. It's like, <laughs> you're entertainment and nothing more. I'm an influencer. So Jesus isn't building his power base upon um, getting allies. It's not power based upon inner character and strength of will. It's not power built upon uh, any of these things. The power of serving God is, is going to be built upon the resurrection. And so he wants to instruct his disciples, listen, you don't get it. Israel has to reject me. I don't want other allies at this point because there needs to be a rejection so then we can be inclusive not only of these who have converted to Judaism and, and uh, we, we know Ethiopian eunuch did that, right? He was there worshiping and heard the gospel uh, when he was there and, and received it on his way back to Ethiopia and started a church there and a very strong church in Ethiopia historically that stopped the Muslims in their tracks. Um, unfortunately, the Catholics called them 
heretics, but they stopped the Muslims in their tracks, um, and uh, the Donatists, and, and they, they did it. And so we know that there were Africans, there were Asians, there were Europeans, um, all in this group, worshiping. But none of that was the power. The power was the resurrection. And he's trying to communicate to his disciples, listen, the power of the kingdom of God is not in what you have always associated with on this earth, but rather the power is in conquering sin and death for all. So Jesus Christ is going to do that. He's going to conquer sin. He's going to conquer death. And he begins a series here of statements that are going to take us months to really investigate as we go through the balance of this book that talk about what's he here for. What is his mission? What's Jesus' purpose? His purpose is... Self-sacrifice. He's here to be your sacrifice. To cover your sin. Absolutely necessary. But he's also here to empower you to serve him. The power of the resurrection. The grain of wheat has to go into the dirt and die. The burial. But once it dies, then up comes this plant. And out of that plant you're going to get many-fold. Many times the, the one grain of wheat. And so he says the power of this is going to be in my death, burial, and resurrection. That will be the power of the church to serve. That's going to be, now you're going to be ready to move from just observer to participant. Now, unfortunately, in our churches, we promote spectator worship. I, it's just, and it's frightening because um, it, it has no power. Spectator worship is powerless. We think it's power because sometimes it gives us goosebumps and we associate that with power. Um, uh, that's not the power of God. The power of the gospel is to transform lives to be more like Jesus. The power of the gospel is holy living. But we have designed worship to be a spectator sport. That we have a few up here, and then most of us are sitting down, facing a direction, and you're the spectators, and I gotta try to keep you awake, keep you engaged. Um, and that is not the power of the gospel. I want you to notice what Jesus says here is the evidence of loving him. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, let him my father will honor. You want the honor of a kingdom. I'm telling you, you need the honor of service to God. True worship is service. Jesus says, my mission has been to come and die, be buried and raised again for the forgiveness of your sin and the empowerment of your, of your transformation from old things that are going to pass away and you're going to become a new person. To such a degree that Jesus says you're going to be born again in John 3. Remember that a few chapters ago. It was like a year ago or something. <laughs> that transformative power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, necessitating his death. He says, listen, you want to believe in me? You're going to have to share all of that. Not only share his death, burial, and resurrection by association, that is by belief. And so we call people to the first step of faith, and that is to believe in what, the work that Jesus did for you. But it is the first step of faith in a journey of faith that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not one step. Because if you take one step, what is your position right now?
Okay, here's, here's the line. I'm a sinner. I'm going to take one step. Where am I? I'm straddling a fence. And on one side, God hates. And one side, God loves. And this is where most Christians are spectating from. Because they've only taken one step of faith. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I, will, I believe Jesus came and died. I believe. And this is John's concern. You've taken one step. Which means that half of you is still back here. Serving yourself. Serving the world. Serving all of this garbage. Sin. And Jesus himself comes onto the scene and says, Listen. <laughs> Anyone serves me, let him follow me. You're gonna, if you want into my kingdom, you want that position, you want that, that place in my kingdom, then you're gonna have to serve me, you're gonna have to follow me, and that following me is that where I go, you go. The disciples got it they didn't get it today they got it after they got the holy spirit they go oh man we why didn't we understand that then wow and maybe you've never understood this facet but he says listen you believe you want to serve you want to follow then you better be ready to go where i go well where's jesus going he's going down the via dolorosa the way of suffering He's going to self-sacrifice. He is going to walk in the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, for God is with him. His rod, his staff will comfort me, because he found no comfort among his friends. They were asleep when he was torn, torn up inside at Gethsemane. They abandoned him at a, following his trial, and as he hung on the cross, naked, they were ashamed, and they hid. Are you ready to go where the Savior's gone? That's the second step. You're going to follow me. You want to be in the kingdom of God, and we're all enticing people, we're begging people, and we've made this gospel really simple, and you just have to believe, and, and you just have to accept Jesus as your Savior. You, he died for you, and he, you can cover your sins, you have no guilt, and it's all forgiven, and, and that's, that's all true. <laughs> but it's only half the truth. Because the other half of the truth is you only really believe that which moves you to action. He says, you believe in me? Follow me. Where I go, you go. And later on, the disciples figured that out. Why do you think you get beat up and you walk out with a great big grin on your face and you say, we're counted worthy of suffering for his name's sake. I've never seen a Christian do that in my life. I'm still waiting Maybe I'm not in a right place to see Christians suffer like that and smile and rejoice. The apostles began to understand that and as one by one they were hated of this world and, and martyred, beginning with Stephen and then moving on, uh, their counts were filled with joy. power of Stephen's martyrdom, one of the Greeks who's going to embrace this gospel. He's not taking one step. He's taking two steps. I'm with him. I'm his follower. I will go where he has gone. I'm not just stepping over a line wanting to get the good stuff on this side while still clinging to that side. I'm really pursuing my own ambitions, my own things. You know, I don't want to burn any bridges back here. You never know. This might not work out over here. The disciples did not live that way. And for the Greeks who are going to hear the gospel a few weeks from now, Pentecost, 50 days, um, a few weeks from this are going to embrace it. And of the 
thousands upon thousands who get saved. We know there were a great number of Greeks. And the first seven deacons of the church all have Greek names. None of them have Jewish names. None of them. That was the power of Stephen. All the world is going after him. Jesus. Because the Greeks, they didn't take a step over the line. They went, boom, boom. I am on this side, no doubt. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I will go where he has gone. And part of that is self-sacrifice. I am surrendering who I am. And the other aspect we're going to see in John, and we've already seen it, is the love of God that we're going to share one to another. This is the power of participatory worship instead of spectator worship. I am going to involve myself because I love others enough. More, I esteem them better than myself, Philippians says. So I will serve them. I won't walk, look around and say, who's serving me? You're not meeting my needs. I've been a pastor long enough to hear that hundreds of times. You are not meeting my needs. From mature Christians, quote-unquote mature Christians, all the way down to people who don't even understand what they're saying, but they've picked it up somewhere. Pastor, you're not meeting my needs. Well, whose needs are you meeting? Because you should be serving. You should be in participatory worship, which means you do something. Not just sing. Singing is participatory. I love congregational singing. That's why I prefer congregational singing um, because I, I, I prefer it. It's participatory. I don't mind a choir. I don't mind special music now and then. I kind of like it. Uh, but it's entertaining. And I'm not participating enough. It's okay. Just like right now, you're not participating enough. That's why people say amen, because they participate. <laughs> That's right. When people are trying, they're engaging, they're telling me they're awake. Amen. Thank you. They're participating in the worship service of preaching. Sometimes it gets a little annoying, but they're engaged. The love of God it moves us. Obedience, Jesus Christ just said, I am here to be glorified. And that whole idea of glorification is complete obedience to God. This is participatory life of Christianity. This is participating Christianity in worship, not spectator. And the frightening thing about spectators is that they know everything. Did you notice that? So we were watching this football game, and I'm like, Cincinnati got blown out by Ohio State, like, I don't know, 80 to nothing. I don't know what it was, 50-something to nothing. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm watching. I was like, well, they deserve to lose. The coaches keep calling the same play over and over and over again. I think Ohio State's figured that one out. I don't know what they have for personnel and what their – I don't know anything about their Cincinnati football team. College, Cincinnati College, University. But I know, because I'm a spectator, I've never coached football in my life. Hope I never have to. <laughs> but I'm a spectator. I know everything. You see, spectator worship becomes very dangerous. Because it's selfish. And because it has expectation of my needs to be met, my entertainment, and it's not like Jesus. It is unlike Jesus. Jesus did not come here to spectate. He came here to serve. He says, you want to serve me? You want to follow me? You're going to go where I go. Where did he go? Self-sacrifice. Where did he go? Love others. Though it cost me my life to love them and serve them. I'm going to have complete obedience to the Father. You gonna ready to go there? Are you ready to be a participant in the kingdom of God or a spectator of the kingdom of God? Turn with me in Matthew sixteen. John has Jesus' words saying this. This is what Matthew has. Chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his expectations. Right? You will receive rewards for being here and spectating someone else worshiping God. You didn't meet my needs today, Pastor. No. God's reward will be according to his works. Deny yourself, take up your version of the cross of Jesus Christ, self-sacrifice out of love and complete uh, loyal obedience. These are the elements that demonstrate that we are fully in with Jesus, that we are truly his follower. Not one step in, in this, I believe, but yet I'm clinging. No, I have broken that off. I have burned every bridge. I have, I have salted the land. I'm not going back there. I am pressing on for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I've counted everything behind me as garbage, as dung, as manure. I don't want to lay in it. I don't want to step in it. I don't even want to smell it anymore. That's my old life. I want it gone. I want to live for Christ in righteousness and truth and in loving, complete obedience to God. This is participatory Christianity, not spectator Christianity. I want you to realize that there were spectators at the triumphal entry and there were participatory participants. And the disciples are there participating in it. And we're going to talk about yet one of them was even unclean. Don't think that just because you're participating in worship that then you've got everything because you can even deceive yourself in that capacity. We're going to talk about that down the road a few weeks. But oh, that we would desire after more than just believing in Jesus, but following Jesus in service, in active worship. Last night I got to watch myself. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. My son came across a video of my sermon in the Philippines at the conference. It is, and it was different than my sermons to you because I wasn't preaching to my church, I was preaching to other pastors. So it was necessarily different. And so I got to hear myself preach to me, another pastor. And it was convicting, I got to tell you. That guy steps on toes. He stepped on mine as a reminder. I need to keep on participating and serving God to the end. Faithfulness isn't measured by when you set the finish line. It's when God set the finish line. Faithful is measured to the end. I need to be faithfully serving and participating and following after God, denying myself, taking up the cross he's given me and follow him. And I have too many times entertained the idea that I could easily go do something else and it would be a lot easier. And it would be. Back there. In that old life. It would be easy to just go into the world. But I've stepped over the line. My life isn't my own. My resources are God's resources. My time is God's time. My energy is God's energy. I committed them to him a long time ago. And maybe it's now that the real measure of faithfulness comes in. 
when the cross is heavy on your shoulder. And the hill of Golgotha is right in front of you. And you know how this is going to end. And yet it's not the end. For he who sacrifices everything, God will honor in the kingdom. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all. The least of these, my brethren, serve. The disciples hadn't learned that lesson yet. They will. They'll get it. When they get the Holy Spirit, they'll get it. They're still going to fight about an earthly kingdom because they still got one foot firmly planted in this world. Even while they have committed themselves to following Jesus and even made the statement, we'll follow you to death but they didn't really understand what that meant. And perhaps you are in that condition. One step foot is across the line. You believe in Jesus, but you haven't made the commitment, I will follow you. I will deny myself. I will take up my cross. I will follow you wherever you go. And we know where that place is. It's a place of suffering, and it's a place of shame and humiliation. It is a place darkness seems is the shadow of death but it is only a shadow for there is light beyond that and so our Lord for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame because he saw beyond it the glory that we're going to be studying next week the glory to come let's pray Lord God we do thank you for your love for us We thank you for the opportunities you give us to worship you. And Lord, we know a lot of this today has been pretty passive. We've received your word. Now, Lord, what are we going to do with it? Help us to actively put these into our lives that we might practice them and perfect them in us, that we might serve you Lord, give us, by your Spirit, an understanding of what it means to deny ourselves. What is entailed in carrying a cross? What it truly means to follow you wherever you go. Lord, you are a master. You are greater than we. If you suffer from this world, they hate you. They should certainly hate us, the lesser. Lord, give us courage and fortitude to stand, to walk by faith and not by sight, to hold fast that which you have attained for us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.